I can feel a tap on my shoulder and it's the man. And he looks at my customer, not at me. And he says, whatever this man offers you, whatever he tells you, you should get, you buy. He has nothing but your best intentions at his heart. He's given me my wife back. We get to watch hockey. I make her popcorn and she says she feels like she's at the stadium again. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. So our guest today is Will Fuentes, and Will is the founder of Maestro Group. Will, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to, and just doing my research on the show, there's a lot of things that I'm excited to dive into. But to kick it off, tell us a little bit more about Maestro Group and what you're doing today. Yeah, so at its essence, we're a uh, sales training organization that really focuses on solving two problems. Number one is, why do sellers do things that are counterproductive to their success? And really getting into the psychology of that. And then the psychology of building trust with buyers. Like, what is it that we can do as professionals in a consistent manner that creates psychological safety to get buyers to a decision? Not a yes or a no, but a decision point. And that's really at the essence what we are. We do a lot of other things, but you know, our core is training and making sales professionals better. Yeah, and that's definitely something I'm going to want to hit on for sure, especially given my background with sales and, and everything else. I'm excited to chat through that. But to kick it off, where did your career kick off just in in general? And I definitely want to hear about the butcher shop. <laughs> yeah, that's where my career kicked off was at the butcher shop. I wanted to take a young lady out in high school and I didn't have any money. And she was away at Brown University for a summer program. And she said, when, when I get back home, I'll go out with you. I didn't have any money, so I needed to get a job. So I went with my mom one day to go pick up some meat at the butcher shop. I mean, this is a true story. Went to my mom and I saw that they were hiring. So I applied, got the job later that day and you know, started a career there. And I call it a career because I was there through my senior year of high school, all of college, all of law school. And then even after law school, I went back and helped a couple of holiday seasons. And so worked the counter and got really good at asking people questions as to what they were planning on cooking for dinner and what they were planning on cooking the next night and making suggestions and becoming a, you know, a butcher solutioner, if you will. So that's really where it started. Started there, went to law school, like I just said, graduated law school, was the youngest law school graduate of my class, failed the bar, lost my job at a firm and was just kind of drifting and working at a small little firm that I had worked in during law school, but I didn't want to be there. And my brother was working at Best Buy and he said, hey, you should come work at Best Buy too for the holidays. And I ended up falling in love with retail and retail sales and got an amazing mentor. His name is Brian Dunn. He was COO at Best Buy at the time, later became CEO. And from there, just managed a bunch of stores, ended up going to Bed Bath & Beyond, H.H. Gregg, and then started a software company raise some money. We were a little bit ahead of our time, but you know, it was a good learning lesson in terms of selling and selling the product. Ended up winding that down and went to work for a company called Revionics and had an amazing time there learning from some former Oracle people, not only sales, but product marketing. I had a great influencer. Her name was Cheryl Sullivan. She taught me a ton. And then I got an opportunity. I was had a little side hustle consulting on sales and teaching some sales to, to some younger account executives. 
that were selling into retail and got an opportunity to go join a company that I was consulting for and took that opportunity, jumped over to become the VP of sales. I lasted there a month. And after that month, uh, the CEO and I just, it just wasn't right. We were great as consultant and client, but not great as employee employer. I left there and with no real plan, decided to start Maestro and uh, got my first client a week later. And then a couple of weeks later, got my second. And then, you know, a couple of months later, I had hired a few people on and off and running we were. That was uh, six, almost seven years ago. So to pull it way back, why law school? What intrigued you about going to law school? Yeah, Perry Mason. My mom and I used to watch Perry Mason together all of the time, and I loved it. And I thought the idea of being a courtroom lawyer was something that I could do and was going to be just an incredible job. And when I got to law school, I realized it wasn't about courtroom dramas. It was a lot of hard work to actually be a lawyer and very little courtroom unless you you know, were a, a prosecutor or a public defender. You, you probably weren't spending much time in the courtroom. But that's really what it was. I wanted to be the big Perry Mason attorney type. And uh, yeah, just never materialized. So when you decided to kind of change paths, right? You said, I don't know if I decided or it was decided for me, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what was that transition like for you? It was humbling. It was incredibly humbling because number one, I didn't know what I was doing. I just was doing something to do something. Number two, the Best Buy I went to work for happened to be across the street from the high school where I had been a graduation speaker a few years earlier. And my boss was someone who was in attendance because they were graduating high school <laughs> when I was a speaker. And that was like my first boss there. So it was a little bit humbling. And the other part of it that was super humbling for me, and it was a wake-up call around sales in general, was my law degree didn't matter. It didn't matter that I had all this education. I could be outworked and outsold by a 16-year-old kid who just learned the product, learned the process, and worked it. And so that was a really big wake-up call to just recognize that like, in sales, there is no barrier to entry and anyone can be successful. And yes, education might help you in terms of like learning how to think, learning how to do all those things. But at the end of the day, like anyone, regardless of like education, can be incredibly successful in sales. And that's what matters. The scoreboard at the end of the day is what mattered, not the fact that I had a degree. You bring up an interesting thing that I think a lot of people wouldn't do, and they end up getting stuck in a career that... It's like the sunk cost fallacy, right? I mean, you probably could have continued and, and eventually kind of made that through or whatever that may be. But to change careers, I mean, I have to assume at some point you're like, I don't really want to do this anyway. Like, is this worth me putting in all this extra effort to do it? Is that fair or am I off on that? I think at some point it wasn't the right fit. It wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I was really good in retail and really good at sales. And there's just something to be said when you're really good at something, like how satisfying it is, specifically something that it literally has zero barrier to entry that anyone can do, right? Anyone can do it. You just happen to be specially skilled at it. And there is something, you know, to be said for that. It's, it's exciting. It makes you feel good about yourself. It gives you some sense of purpose or some sense of belonging, you know, that like at the time I was missing. Were you attracted to sales prior to this or like the rest of us, myself included, did you totally fall into it? 
I was attracted to some level of sales, right? So the idea of a, being a courtroom attorney was that you're selling something. You're selling the theory of the case, right, to the jury. And in law school, we, you know, I did a lot of trial court board. And my best friend from law school always said, hey, we're going to start a law firm and you're going to be the rainmaker. You're going to be the guy who gets us the clients. That's what your skill is, right? And in my mind, I'm like, no, I'm a skilled attorney, right? Like, no, I'm not the, don't pawn me off as a sales guy. Like, that's not who I am. But even in my short little stint, you know, with the firm that hired me out of law school, I pretty unheard of within like a couple of weeks, I had a fairly large client. I had landed a fairly large client for the firm. Six-figure client is not a small, something to sneeze at when you've only been working for a few weeks at a law firm. So I obviously had some skill in it, but it was one of these things that I was just kind of like, I didn't think I was committing to it. And really, I think part of the impetus for starting retail-based software company was like, oh, I don't want to just be a retail sales guy. I want to do something bigger than that. But quite honestly, it can be a fairly lucrative career. And lots of people have done incredibly well for themselves by being, you know, retail salespeople and then moving on up and managing, you know, these massive companies. So for you, you were in sales in the first time. Like you said, you were totally humbled, but obviously you got after it because you moved up really quick. What was it? And when you first were kind of getting there, what were some of those early feelings or I would say both signs, positive and negative, once you got into that environment? I can't remember a negative sign. The only negative sign, honestly, was the reaction from my family and friends, right? It's like, you have a lot of degree. What are you doing? I mean, I joke with my wife that like my father to up until maybe two years ago would tell people I was a lawyer. And I'm like, dad, that's not true. Like I have a law degree. You can tell them that like, but don't tell them like, so it's just funny, but it was, that was the only negative, right? Was how like people in my sphere viewed me like, you know, like that. I wasn't serious, that I wasn't making a career, that I literally was just going to be someone who flamed out and, you know, had a mediocre life in their eyes. I'm not saying like, you know, retail is mediocre, but in their eyes, right? Like I was going to work every holiday. I was going to work really late hours. I was going to have a high quality of life. And that's what my life was going to be. And I had so much potential and I had, I was wasting it. That was the only negative. On the positive, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed talking to people. I really enjoyed just helping them and solve the problems. And there's three particular things that I can point to that I remember that were like, kind of like that stick still in my mind today about the impact that sales can have. So the first was I was in a digital imaging department. That's where I was placed at back before, you know, there was cameras on phones, you bought a digital camera and this was brand new technology back then. And those cameras did not come with memory. Like I laugh today when I get a 32 gig memory card for free with something when like a one gig memory card was like $400 when I first started, right? It was like unheard of when <laughs> they were massive. And what I got really good at was creating a story for people when they were coming in. This was the holidays. I was working during the holidays and asking them like, oh, who's this gift for? All right. Like, you know, what do you want the reaction to be when they open? Oh, I want my wife to be super excited. Okay, great. Do you want her to use it immediately to take pictures of what the kids are getting and et cetera? And it's like, yeah, okay, well, then you're going to need a memory card. You're going to need batteries. You're going to need this. You're going to need that. Because otherwise, you're just going to give her this gift that she's going to have to wait till Monday or like the 26th to go out and get the rest of the stuff to make it work. And so the idea that I could like really get to the essence of what people wanted and not in a sleazy way, really solve something for them so they could have a wonderful experience was pretty cool. The second was I moved over right after the holidays, moved over to appliances. The appliance people had left and had quit or whatever. And so they needed someone to move over to appliances. So I moved over to appliances. I so happened to be working in a store that was focused on launching the concept of customer centricity. It's a book by Larry Selden called Angel Customer, Demon Customer, which really talks about like 
how you can treat your customers better and really like create experiences for them. And so because of that, the COO of Best Buy would often visit, that was Brian Dunn, who later became CEO. Steve Ballmer uh, at the time was, I forget what his position was at Microsoft, visited our store a few times. Brad Anderson, who was the CEO, would visit as well because we were like, we were running some incredible tests. Well, it so happened that there was a store visit that day and, and you know, they came by and they said, oh, you're the kid from digital imaging. You created a, a tracker. I had created this little tracker that people were using in order to remind them of like what accessories they should sell with stuff and how to offer it. And they had rolled it out to various stores in the company. And, and so they were just thanking me for that. Well, I ended up selling a, the mother came in, a mom came in and, and, um, you know, was needed a washer and dryer and, you know, asked her a bunch of questions and we moved from a very cheap washer and dryer to a much better pair for her, right? It's just faster cycles. They had steam cycles. She had a bunch of kids that cleaned their uniforms and all this stuff that like the other wasn't going to do. And I had also sold her a service plan. And so when we got to the register, I said to her, I said, okay, you know, I walked her through what she was buying and I said, okay, you've also selected the service plan. Here are the five reasons why you said it made sense for you and your family to purchase a service plan. If any of these reasons aren't true or you don't feel they're compelling enough, let me know so I can take it off your bill. And walked her through and she said, no, that's exactly right. Thank you very much. Well, out came one of the executives and was like, I need to speak to you. And I said, oh, well, I'm going to get in trouble because I was about to walk a service plan. I was giving someone the option to opt out of it after they've opted in. And they said to me, this is Circuit City was still around. And what they said to me was, hey, if every one of our employees treated customers the way that you just treated that one, we would never lose to Circuit City ever, a deal to Circuit City. Whatever you saw in her that, like, that you felt that there was doubt, you were able to overcome that by giving her an opportunity to walk from it. And that was amazing. And you have a great career here in retail, right? And you should join our team. And now I'm thinking, this is amazing. I'm about to go to corporate. That what he was suggesting was that I became a full-time employee making $8.50 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes. I mean, what was I going to do? And so I remembered that experience. And then a few months later, I had moved into home theater, which is the big leagues in Best Buy. If you ever like now you're selling TVs. When this gentleman came in, there was a 36-inch TV, big old tube TV that was on sale. And he said he wanted to buy it. And you know, the majority of people, when someone says that, right, they'll say, okay, great. Let me put it on the cart for you. I'll bring you out, whatever. And I said, hey, before I sell you that television, can I ask, like, why are you interested in this TV? And he's like, well, my wife's losing her vision and I need something big. And she also has difficulty moving. And, and we used to go to hockey games and I figure something bigger will allow her to see the puck. Well, this is when HD was first coming out and hockey just happened to be the one sport that was on HD. And so I said, hey, I've got a loop here that can show you what hockey looks like on HD. Let me show you what that'll look like. Won't look like that on your 36. It'll look like that on something else. And so I showed him and then I, you know, walked him through like, well, this is like TV you need. These are the cables you would need. Here's the new service that you need, how you upgrade it. You know, here's what it's going to cost you. And I'll get it delivered for you. He's an older man. I'll get it installed. I'll get it all hooked up and, you know, et cetera. So it went from like a $300 sale to, you know, it was close to three grand. And, you know, he walked out. And then a couple of days later, maybe about a week, week and a half later, I'm sitting there and I'm talking to someone and I feel a tap on my shoulder and it's the man. And he looks at my customer, not at me. And he says, whatever this man offers you, whatever he tells you, you should get, you buy. He has nothing but your best intentions at his heart. He's given me my wife back. We get to watch hockey. I make her popcorn and she says she feels like she's at the stadium again. And I'll always remember like, that. <laughs> that was, to me, was an incredible moment 
right? Like sales could offer this like life-changing moment for people, right? If you just take your time, you ask the right questions and, and you solution things correctly, you can change people's lives. And that is what like Maestro has really at its essence we talk about is like, you know, my one and only goal is to change people's financial futures by teaching them to be better sales professionals. And if I can do that for individuals, then organizations themselves will be successful. And so those were the moments as I was making the transition that I was like, man, this is a pretty noble profession and there's nothing wrong with being a sales professional versus a lawyer. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, one of the things that it was told to me really early on by, it was a guy who's a very, very, very successful financial planner. He said, he goes, if you're a business owner, you're a salesperson, period. And it's for all the exact reasons that you just said right there. And the best salespeople are the ones that are are looking at the whole total picture, co-creating that solution together and are asking questions to get to the root of why we're looking at this to begin with. Because a lot of times what we think it is and what the actual solution is are just two totally different things. I think it's an excellent story. Now, was it at Best Buy where you learned about the 40-20 rule? No, <laughs> it wasn't at Best Buy. Quite honestly, I want to attribute it to a gentleman named Matt Samuelson, but I'm not it was a mentor of mine. He worked at the Gap Williams Cinema and Restoration Hardware. And Matt, you can take credit. I don't know if it was you exactly <laughs> or not, but for some reason, that, that sticks out in my mind. I think we were just talking about what it takes to be successful. He had created this career where he had started in retail and now had, was an executive at, you know, at the time was at, at Gap. And I remember, for whatever reason, what sticks in my mind is that he had said to me that like, that he had committed to himself to do his job in the hours that he was at his job and then spend at least half of that time trying to be a better professional and improve himself and learn more because that's what he felt was going to advance him and advance him faster. And so that really stuck out to me because this is someone, again, he graduated from University of Alabama. He's working in a Gap store. He takes a pay cut to go work for Gap like at a lower level at corporate and rose through the ranks and you know obviously like had been very successful. And so as I started to talk to professionals that I admired, I often found that they spent a lot of time like kind of honing their craft, right? Like outside of work hours. They work was work, but there was professional development that was happening all of the time. And even self-reflection and personal development around who they were as a person or how they worked best and understanding that. And as I started to apply it, I started to see significant changes in the business. And then, you know, obviously I'm seeing things that are changing in the business. I'm seeing that we're being successful in how we sell the services of Maestro. And so it's like, okay, let's start to create a small little mini training around this so that people understand. Because I often feel like we just believe that people understand how to be successful. They just choose not to. I actually don't think that's really the case. I think most people know how to be okay at things. They don't know how to be excellent. Yeah, that's interesting. And to break it down a little bit, the it's 40 hours, essentially what you're saying, we got 40 hours of my regular job and 20 hours of doing things outside of our normal job, whether that's courses, podcasts, trainings, whatever that may be to improve both yourself as a professional and both yourself as a person. I love that. I never heard that before, but I will say, and I've said it all the time, I've said this a million times when people ask, you know, what 
what separates kind of the best from everybody else? Well, the best, especially in sales, I think this is I think this is with anything, but in sales in particular, the best are owning their own development. They'll take what the company gives them, of course, but they're always doing something outside of that in order to improve and to grow and to get to that next level. And they're very humble about it. They don't think that they have everything figured out because the second you do, you're kind of done growing. Right. So I think that's excellent. So you're at Best Buy and worked your way up through Best Buy. What did you do after kind of the stint in retail? So I started a company called Lima Retail. It was a, um, a clienteling application focused at the point of non-sale. So what had made me successful at Best Buy when I started running stores and what made me successful at Bed Bath & Beyond and HH Greg was that I would often teach my teams to ask a very simple question when someone was passing on buying something. Would you like for me to reach out to you when this goes on sale? And so we're testing, like, do, are they really serious about it or not? Like, you know, are they moving on? And, you know, when the people that said yes, I said, okay, great. At what price point or what discount do you need me to reach out so it makes sense? And they would tell me. And then we would, I would take that information. And there's this thing in retail called at-risk inventory, end-of-life inventory. And you, know, you got to get rid of it because it's at risk. That means it's going to come off your shelves and it's going to hit your P&L and blah, blah, blah. It's just really, it's not, it's not, we don't need to get into the weeds of it, right? But the goal is to get rid of it as fast as possible. And then you get these reports that tell you when things are going to go at risk. Like, you know, hey, you've got 30 of these and they're going at risk in like two weeks. <laughs> and you're going to take a 60% reduction on them. So I would get permission to be like, hey, I have a list of 50 people that want this item that's going to go for 60% off that are willing to buy it at 20 can I offer special deal non-advertised to them at 20% off? Interesting. That's a super interesting idea. Yeah. And so they would say, sure. And so I would call people or text them and say, hey, like I can give it to you at 20% off. You told me this is when you wanted to buy. Let me know. Got to come today or tomorrow. And so I would move this inventory. So my stores were just a lot more successful. They were margin rich because I wasn't taking these massive discounts. And so I, what I wanted to do was I basically wanted to like codify that and put that into a process. And so we built a platform to do that. There's a company today called Tulip Retail that does some parts of that. We were just a little bit ahead at the time. Like, you know, you needed an iPad. This is 2012. Like iPads weren't like today. It's not like every store associate had one, right? Like for me to tell someone you got to buy a three, $400 piece of equipment and hope it doesn't get stolen by your, you know, and you got to figure out how to lock them. Like that just wasn't happening, right? So, but people were interested in, in the idea. So I got to meet a lot of very cool people and have great conversations about the future of retail some great leaders and CEOs and, you know, went down and I ended up Revionics next, you know, I took some of that, they did price optimization as well, but I took some of that learning and, you know, was able to now think about like, all right, well, this is a company that has been more backing and has been out there. They were focused on grocery, but I, I learned quite a bit on how to position a product correctly, how to create the right assets, all of those things that like, I was kind of learning on the fly. I didn't know, not necessarily know how to do, but now like was getting taught by people who had been doing it previously at Oracle and now at Revionics. And that was that was a big boost to my career. And the nice thing about it is, you know, it was 40-20 there application is that there was a lot of things I didn't know how to do. So I had to spend time, right? Like going to learn the process, learning how to do teaching myself so that I can be valuable to the organization. You know, everything from creating one minute videos, product videos that like, I just never had done that, right? <laughs> and using those tools to creating specific marketing assets for salespeople. And so, yeah. That's really where the next step in my career was. So at this next step, what were some of those challenges coming from starting your own company to now being in a more established company? What was that transition like just in general? 
Yeah. I mean, again, it was another humbling experience, right? Like I thought I had, you know, I had, I'd been on the cover of the Washington business journal. I had had a, a spread of the New York times, you know, I'd like, I'd been in the Washington post and now like I was back to just being a worker bee. And so that was a little bit humbling, but some of the bigger challenges were like, okay, some of the stuff that I had the team to do that I thought were great ideas. Anytime I came up with a great idea, it was like, there is no team here. Like I had to go execute this great idea and learning how to do those things was a little bit tough. And then the other thing that was tough, I would often, you know, sit on sales calls or listen to them or go on sales calls and just seeing just some of the technique that like, I didn't know anything really. I wasn't professionally trained in sales, but I just knew what I was seeing wasn't the best. There's ways to improve it, but I had no position of authority, right? To, to coach or train people. These were much more senior people. And so that was a little bit tough too, because it was like, I could sell this better. <laughs> it is interesting. Just hearing in these couple of different stories, I think probably honestly, one of the best things, best takeaways I've just heard from this in general is you have zero fear about going into whatever that next role is. I, again, like one of the things I think I see all the time is people are afraid to take what's perceived to be a step back. And I say perceived, I think that's important, is we feel that it's a step back. But each time you did it, you had multiple steps forward. Is that accurate or am I off on that? We teach the Phoenix sales method. And the reason we call it the Phoenix sales method is for that, you, you pick up and rise from the ashes. So two kind of interesting things for me, there are threads in my life, one really, and it's the influence my grandfather had on me. So my grandfather would often tell me, look at like those great long jumpers or pole vaulters, right? They take a step back, they rock back a little bit before they explode forward, right? Never be afraid to rock back a little bit to gain the momentum that you need in life. That was number one. And number two, you know, he came from really humble beginnings. He had a third grade education. He self-taught himself statistics and became, ended up with a master's degree from Vanderbilt, like but literally with a third grade education. Like he taught himself and got into a master's program from El Salvador, right? And he was an orphan. He grew up in the slums of, of San Salvador and figured out a way. And so for me, these minor setbacks, boo-hoo, I have a lot of great, I'm working at Best Buy. I mean, that's like a minor setback compared to a eight-year-old kid whose both parents have died and you're an orphan and you've got two little siblings, you got to figure out how to feed them. In my mind, it's like, I think that to me is what like sits within my belly, which is like, what am I even worried about? It's like fear is being eight, having no parents and not knowing how to feed your younger siblings, right? Fear is not like, oh, I've got a job that doesn't pay me as much as I want it to pay me and I'm doing something that like I don't know how to do. That what who cares? That it to me I often think about that. And I actually is one of the key elements that as we talk about, like, as we had these behavioral psychologists, industrial organizational psychologists kind of review my sales process, they keyed in on that, that like, there's this sense of like, no fear. I'm going to ask the difficult question because what's the worst that can happen? You're going to tell me you don't want to buy from me? Well, you're not buying from me right now anyway. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and one of the things we often teach people is like how to be bold and like, you know, how to get over your sense of like, oh my gosh, they're not going to like me. They don't like you or dislike you anyway. Like this is a commercial relationship, right? It's okay. If you've earned the right to ask for the sale, ask for the sale. If you've earned that right. And don't be worried about the outcome. Yeah. Just be worried about like not asking for it and wasting your time. I couldn't agree more. Was it after this company that you started Maestro? So this company was based in Austin. And so the workday there started at 10 a.m. Eastern time, right? So they started at 9 a.m. Central, 10 a.m. So I was consulting from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. 
on sales to various groups. And one of those clients offered me a job and I went to work there for a month. And then after that, so again, you talk about no fear, right? Like I literally, I remember one month in, you know, it's the first day of my of kindergarten for my son. And I get a call and the CEO is like, hey, I need to meet with you. Well, the day before the first day of kindergarten, he calls me and says, hey, can I meet you for breakfast tomorrow? And I said, oh yeah, at what time? And he tells me the time. And I said, well, I was planning on dropping off my kid for his first day of kindergarten, but let me see if my wife will do that. And then I'll, I'll meet you. And he said, no, nah, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Just come when you can. Let's, you know, whatever. And so I said, fine. It was a beautiful September day. And I dropped off my son and, you know, walked to the restaurant and see him sitting outside, uh, you know, to, to eat. And the head of HR is there as well as the COO. And I knew, hey, this is just not going to work. And I had known this like two weeks in, I knew things weren't going great between us. And so I had tried to get my job back at Revionics. And they were like, the position has been eliminated. If we brought you back, it'd be at half your salary. Like, and I was like, sure, I'll take it. And they're like, don't. And I remember Cheryl Sullivan saying to me, no, you're not going to take it. You're going to be unhappy. It's a horrible decision for you to come back to do that. And it's a horrible decision for the company too. And she wouldn't take me back. So that I walk up and he says, this isn't working out. I'm sure you know that. I said, yep. He says, hey, like today will be your last day, but we'll pay you out for the next two weeks. And I said, okay. Got up. Didn't even order breakfast. <laughs> I should have ordered, but uh, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't order breakfast. I got up and, you know, the distance between where the table was and where my car was, maybe it was maybe 250 feet or so. And whatever amount of time it took me to walk those 250 feet, you know, at a normal pace is the amount of time I allowed myself to feel sorry for myself. Got in the car, called my wife and said, I'm starting a consulting company focused on helping salespeople get better. And she said, go for it. I'm with you. And that was it. How'd you get it going? So, you know, what's funny. I've been asked this question a lot by people who have found themselves either downsized or fired or whatever else. And they ask like, hey, like you seem to just get it going pretty quickly. You're from what I understand or what they've heard or whatever. And so I truly believe in this, right? I truly believe in the momentum of the world, right? And like you gotta put it out there as quickly as possible with as much energy as possible to as many people as possible. This is what I'm doing. This is what's going on, right? And so I started that day emailing people and being like, hey, you know, you commented on the fact one time that you heard me speak that I was really good and I probably was amazing at sales. I actually trained people on sales. Would you like me to train your sales team? Would you, you know, and I was like, you know, on message boards looking for people that were asking for help in sales and immediately like putting my feelers out there being like, hey, what exactly are you looking for? You know, and just really getting going. And I remember, I'll always remember the first deal because it was a time and materials. We now do fixed fee, but it was time and materials. And, you know, I talked to the CEO. He's like, yeah, great. Let me know what your rate's going to be. And I remember thinking to myself, oh man, I really need this. Like, I just really need this. And my gut was telling me to go much lower than what my head was telling me that I was worth. Right. And people always say, trust your gut. But this time I didn't. I trusted my head <laughs> because my head was telling me, don't do anything stupid. Just trust in yourself and trust in your value. So I put out my hourly fee. And I remember he wrote back to me and said, perfect. No problem. If you had gone any lower than that, I wouldn't have hired you because I wouldn't have believed that you believed you were worth it. <laughs> and I'll always remember that. And, you know, it's like, yeah, that was it. That started it. And then I got into this good rhythm which was about a week in, his team was doing things differently. And he was like, he came up to me, he's like, man, he was like, I've been listening to the calls, I'm listening to my team, so much more confident. 
I love how they're talking to people. I love how they're asking for the sale when you know they've gotten this information, things that we weren't doing before, et cetera. And I looked at him and said, okay, great. I need you to post to this message board about the success you've already seen in a week. And he said, great. So he did. And I got my next client. And then same thing happened with that client about like, maybe about three weeks in with that client, the next client. They said the same thing. I said, great. I need you to post to the message board where you found me about my success in those three weeks. And so I got into this rhythm that the minute that people had an aha moment with me or Maestro, we asked for that referral. Like, hey, because like that's the moment where they're just like, this is money so well spent. They're going to be effusive. And if someone calls them, they're going to be like, oh my gosh. Because that's when they remember the pain. Asking for someone for the referral nine months after they've forgotten how bad they were is like, to me, is mind-blowing. Why would you do it then? <laughs> they don't remember. They don't remember what it was like to not be able to ride a bike, right? They just don't remember. Literally, you showed up and they had a box full of pieces. You built the bike and taught the kid how to ride it, right? So like, that's when you should be like having them go out and sing your praises and be your referral. Not, you know, after the kid won the Tour de France, who cares? Like they, there's so many other influences that have happened at that point. That social proof that you're talking about, right? Posting in a message board or getting a testimonial or get, asking for the referral at that specific time, that doesn't last forever. And you have no idea how that relationship's going to end. Things could be going great for a while and then something can happen that's totally out of your control or you screwed something up. The odds of you getting those things at that time are going to be a lot harder, especially like referrals and things like that. So I that's hit him at the peak, I think is such great advice just in general. And is that essentially what you're saying on the referral and times that you're asking? Yeah, absolutely. By the way, it's the same thing I tell salespeople, right? Like you've put someone through a great process where you have distinguished yourself as a professional versus a salesperson. You've always been on time. You've ended the meetings on time. You've asked great questions. You've given great solutions. You've been transparent and honest. That's the time when you should ask before the product that you gave them doesn't del exactly deliver the to the full or the, first, you know, I'm being serious. Like sometimes, you know, it's, it's beyond your control, right? And so people always say, well, what happens if they say, well, I don't want to refer anybody to you until I've used it, right? I always tell them, so, well, how about this? How about you just, anyone who you think might be interested in learning about it, you tell them about our process and how I treated you and how I valued your time and give you great insights. I'm not asking you to recommend the product. I'm asking you to recommend the experience with me. And that has a pretty profound effect for salespeople in order to get pretty quickly to get a network of people that believe that they are insightful and smart and professional. And that can go a long way in terms of establishing trust in the sales process early. I totally agree with that. You know, I think some people are afraid that they're giving away, especially in the services business, that they're giving away too much upfront. It's like, give it all out. Like, start going immediately. And like, here's the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario is they don't become a client. Okay, great. They used you for free advice. That was probably not going to be the best client in the world anyway, if they were going to be a client. So give it out there, start going into it. Nine times out of 10, you end up just rolling right into it. And it's a much better relationship. I totally agree with that. 100%. So you've grown Maestro. You've clearly made a big impact on a lot of people's lives. And I love the messaging that you're having with salespeople just in general. What's next for Maestro? What's next for Will? So in 2023, we are really focusing on leveling up our training. And what I mean by that is, is we're going to do some pretty interesting stuff. We're going to go really hard into the classroom-based stuff with these like kind of labs practices where you get to work with, you know, senior salespeople that can help you strategize, help you really learn the concepts and work through. Right now, it's been a little bit less of that and a little bit more of like, 
hey, like here's a lot of good things that you can learn and hopefully you apply some of them. Here we really want to have that strong impact. So that's going to be an exciting change for us in general as an organization. It'll also give us more bandwidth to do more of the trainings because we're hitting a, a bandwidth capacity here. And then for me, I'm working on a couple of things. Number one is more speaking engagements. I'm really looking to get out there a little bit more. I, I did 12 last year, which were pretty good. Looking to do more of those to larger groups. The groups I did them to were mostly CEOs of companies between 5 million to 500 million. I'm looking to actually like go to like lower levels, like VPs, directors, even AEs and doing these larger speaking engagements. And then I've been working on this book forever. <laughs> so hopefully I will. Uh, and the book is interesting if you just give me the space here to talk about it for one second. Yeah, go ahead. So obviously I mentioned my grandfather earlier. My, my father-in-law didn't know English, was here from Greece and figured out, hey, you know what? There's a lot of ships that come into the ports of Baltimore and they don't have enough time to go out shopping. So I'm going to go shop and buy all this stuff. And then I'm going to sell it to the merchant marine guys like on the ship so that like they can get all the clothes for their wives, their girlfriends and all this stuff. And he started business that way and then ended up owning a bunch of real estate. There's you know him. There's a couple of guys that I knew that were homeless before that started companies and that have sold them and that multimillionaires. And, and so this book is really around the story around like that no fear, right? Like how do you like overcome that fear? And so it's really basing it in these stories of individuals like, how to sell when you have no choice but to sell. Like that was what was happening to these individuals. They wouldn't eat. They didn't, couldn't get a roof over their head unless they sold. And so like, how do you internalize like that type of mentality? That's what this book is about telling those stories. Cause I think those stories are so powerful and so valuable to salespeople. Like, Hey, like what's the worst that could happen, <laughs> right? The worst that could happen for this individual is they're not going to eat. So they have no choice, but to ask for the sale because they need to get that money so they can buy food for their family for that night. I think that's a great story. You'll have to keep us posted when you finish that book. Hopefully this is that forcing function to get you to wrap it up. It's out there. <laughs> You're putting it out there now. Well, perfect. Last question I want to leave it on is, you know, what advice would you give your younger self and you choose the age? Yeah, so probably I would tell myself at 17 when I was leaving for college to not be in a rush. I graduated early from college, not to be in a rush, number one. And then the second thing I would tell myself at 17 is don't go to law school, go to business school. <laughs> <laughs> or just get a job right out of college. You'll be fine. <laughs> oh, man, I love it. I'm not saying that law law is beautiful for a lot of people. It just wasn't the right thing for me. No, totally. It's one of the things I firmly believe in, right? Everybody's going to have an opinion on what you should do. And I think most of them have your best interest in mind, but they're looking at your best interest through their lens. And if I'm hearing you, it's more like, go through your lens and what you know you really want to do and follow that. And you've done that. I mean, the reality is you've done that. Like I said, like one of the things I didn't even know about what you're talking about, some of the things that you've done with this kind of rise to the ashes with the Phoenix is that you went to that next position and followed what you want to do. And I think that's awesome. And I think that's such good advice. Will, this has been great, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Loved it. Loved it. This is a lot of fun, actually. I had a lot of fun just kind of remembering some of the beginnings here. Yeah, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. I love it. I love it.